When dealing with a highly advanced alien civilization far ahead of you in technology, you are at an automatic disadvantage. You are not only inferior in technology, but also biology and very likely intelligence. You are an ant to it, living in an anthill, something to be studied at best, but little else. When that civilization enters your star system, you lose your anthill and become an ant living in an ant farm. The alien presence may not exterminate you, as we sometimes do with ants that end up in the wrong places, but it still holds all of the cards, whether its intentions are good or bad. You then live in one of the scariest solutions to the Fermi paradox, the zoo hypothesis. Recent years have shown an uptick in UAP activity, at least an apparent one, Regardless of your conclusions on what these unidentified flying objects might be, one thing is clear. We need to identify them, both on the basis of national security and what earthly adversaries could be doing, but also to determine if we do or do not live in the zoo hypothesis. My guest today is determined to do just that. He proposes that we conduct a legitimate scientific inquiry into the UAP phenomena and start identifying the unidentified. You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Avi Loeb. Avi Loeb is the former chair of the astronomy department at Harvard University, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He also chairs the board on physics and astronomy at the National Academies and the advisory board for the Breakthrough Starshot Project. He is a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Loeb is the best-selling author of Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Dr. Ivy Loeb, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, Doctor, we have had space in the news, in the pop culture, in a rather odd way as of late. The UAP UFO phenomenon, where purportedly the U.S. government and Navy ships and are, are seeing something you know, pilots seeing something. And a government report is due out later this month that indications say they, they're going to say that they don't know what they are. They are unidentified. Which these objects have been reported for many decades, and we still don't know what they are after 70 or more years. In fact, I think, as I recall, you were a successor of... Um, an early scientific researcher in the field, Donald Menzel at Harvard. But we still don't know anything more than we did during his day. How are we going to identify the unidentified? Yes, so the big news of this uh, report would be the statement that these real objects, because the first thing you would worry about that uh, there may be smudges on the cameras or illusions of the pilots or um, some uh, malfunction of the instruments being used. And uh, if the report states that these are real objects, that's a very important statement. Uh, 
because then it means that there could be several interpretations, only several, only three. One is that these objects belong to another nation, they are human-made, and of course that's a serious national security concern. So the fact that the report is being released implies to me that they are not made by other nations because otherwise the government would keep uh, the information classified and act accordingly. National security interests would forbid releasing the information because you want to know how to protect the country and you don't want to know your adversaries what you know. So the fact that the government releases information and says these are real objects means to me that they are not likely to belong to other nations. Okay, so that that possibility can be crossed off for the kind of objects that will be discussed in the report. Okay, of course, it's it could be a mixed bag. There could be many more uh, unidentified objects, some with mundane explanations. But uh, it's enough, I should say, that one of them comes from an extraterrestrial origin to trigger huge interest about the implications. So we don't need more than one that is extraterrestrial to uh, start discussing it uh, extensively. So there are a few, some, that are real, and they probably do not belong to other nations. And the reason for that may be that they behave in a way that does not match the limits of our technology. So we pretty much know what the limits of our technology because in the US we know what the, uh, these limits are and then if there were technologies far more advanced in other countries, we would see signatures of them either in the consumer market or in the battlefield. Those uh, countries would use the uh, technologies they developed to gain advantage relative to other nations. And so we, we have a good sense of, roughly speaking, what the limits are of our technologies everywhere on the globe. And if these objects behave differently, there are two possibilities that remain on the table. One is that they are natural objects, that uh, somehow nature makes objects that behave this way and we have to figure it out. The second is that they are extraterrestrial. They originated from another civilization that is capable of manufacturing technologies far uh, far more advanced than we can fully understand right now. Sort of like the impression that the caveman would get when faced with a cell phone. You know, the caveman would initially say, oh, maybe it's a natural rock, but then, uh, and, and just shiny, but then uh, the caveman would start pressing the buttons and realize that, no, it's something else. So we might be facing something like that, or these objects are natural. And of course, the way to figure it out is straightforward. Once you get to that point, the uh, objects move from the realm of government, because they are not a national security risk, to the realm of science, where uh, you can use open data. So instead of relying on classified information from the past, that obviously the government doesn't want us to see in full because it was derived from sensors that are classified. The government doesn't want the adversaries to know about all the sensors that we have. So forget about it. Let's just collect new data from the same geographical locations by placing, deploying the best cameras we have access to right now, which are far better than used in the past. 
and the audio sensors and just deploy them in the same locations and collect data just like in a scientific experiment. And this data will be open because the sky is not classified. You can look at the sky where, you know, as much as you want. And we will uh, analyze the data scientifically. And I'm very much willing to lead such an experiment uh, that will clear up the fog. You know, it's very unhealthy, the situation where the government makes some statements that are inconclusive, and then the scientific community dismisses the possibility of an extraterrestrial origin, and then the public is left to speculate. That's not a healthy situation. Let's collect more data scientifically and clear up the fog. You have written extensively, along with others, about technosignatures. And one technosignature is some kind of a physical artifact in the solar system, and indeed Oumuamua. This would introduce something interesting into this mix, because if you have such artifacts in the solar system, and you have an active one, it could print out probes, and they could probe the atmosphere of Earth, and people might see them, and voila, you have UFOs. Therefore, we do actually have a plausible way within science for these things to actually be alien craft. Do you agree with that? Yeah, uh, there is definitely a possibility. We just have to keep in mind that we have been broadcasting radio waves for more than a century. So these signals that we sent out uh, into space reached uh, more than 100 light years by now. And if there is any civilization with uh, radio telescopes of the type that we have, they may know about us already and then the question is how quickly will they respond and you know it will take them a million years to reach us if they used chemical rockets of the type that we used like voyager or uh, new horizons but they might use faster propulsion methods or they may have decided a long time ago you know a billion years ago that they want to examine the habitable zones around sun-like stars and they send probes to each and every interesting target, including the sun, which has the earth near it. And and these probes are routinely monitoring what's going on here and relaying the information back. So that is a possibility. And if they thought about it a long time ago, they definitely had the opportunity to send those probes, even at low speeds, even at the characteristic speeds of, of stars and chemical rockets they would make it across the galaxy in a relatively short time and uh, compared to the age of the of the sun for example so um, it's quite possible that uh, we are being visited or were visited i mean it's not excluded by any physical principle and the best way to figure it out is by not having a prejudice you know if we say we know the answer in advance without collecting data then we are fooling ourselves we are just like the philosophers that refused to look through galileo's telescope because they knew that the sun moves around the earth and galileo who looked through his telescope realized that's probably not the case and of course what they are accomplished these these philosophers is maintaining their ignorance You know, we can close down the curtains on our windows and say we don't have neighbors. But the existence of neighbors does not depend on whether we look through the windows or not. And therefore, it's the obligation of scientists to be open-minded, to look through the windows, to check if we have neighbors without a prejudice. One thing piqued my interest particularly about what you said is a threat to national security. So... 
Could an alien civilization being present in our own star system, wouldn't that automatically be a question of national security? Or are you just looking at something so powerful that you couldn't respond with any means? Well, it's not a matter of national security. It may be a matter of international security because it's not one particular nation that uh, is at risk here. It's the entire human species, potentially. And whether it's at risk or not depends on the intent of the senders of of those objects. And we don't know what the intent was. And, And by the way, even if it looks peaceful and quite innocent, Just keep in mind the story about the Trojan horse that looked innocent and led to uh, quite severe consequences. So what appears innocent and not so harmful might end up being quite a significant risk. So we should keep that always in mind. And we have no evidence or no way of figuring out the intent without getting more data. And I think the key is not to have a prejudice to collect as much evidence as possible and move this subject from the government to the scientific sector. And it's not a trivial matter, I should say, because, well, first of all, the data was classified for national security reasons, and that's why the process was delayed. But moreover, there is a huge resistance within the scientific community of discussing it. There is a taboo on discussing it. And, you know, I wrote the the recent book, Extraterrestrial. It received a huge reception from the general public, became a bestseller instantly. But the scientific community still has a hard time discussing it openly. The possibility that perhaps the first interstellar object we have seen, Oumuamua, was a technological relic. And I just say, let's put it on the table because it looked so weird, didn't look like a comet or an asteroid that we have seen before. Nevertheless, there is a huge resistance and very strong emotional response of scientists to this possibility. Whereas people are willing to discuss options for the nature of dark matter that are highly speculative. We have no evidence for them. Nevertheless, they don't feel threatened by the dark matter being something highly speculative. But they are feeling a strong emotional connection to the possibility that we might not be the smartest kid on the block. That threatens the ego of every human. It's just like, you know, my daughters when they were young and we brought them to the kindergarten. They had a psychological shock on the first day in kindergarten because they finally, for the first time, realized that there are kids that might be smarter than they are. And they would have preferred to stay at home and maintain the illusion that they are the smartest in in the whole world. But um, reality is different. And whether you ignore it or not doesn't really matter. John, you've been inside for 154 days and haven't seen another human in 200 days. Have you forgotten how to socialize? What? That can't be right. Bring up a recording of the last time I saw another person. Playback starting. Hey, you turkey. Your possum owes me for all these parts. Okay, you can stop that. Yep, it's been a while. I know the solution. Today's sponsor, Hunt a Killer. A fully-fledged murder mystery investigation that you can play with a group of fellow humans. Ooh, I do like a good whodunit. What's it about? 
When Julia Adler unearths the corpse of a famous actress from the 30s in her family's theatre, what was previously thought of a disappearance is revealed to be a murder. With the board of directors trying to push her out and the theatre's reputation on the line, she looks to you to discover the truth about this cold case investigation. Hunter Killer will bring you together with people again, John with a challenging mystery where you can decode ciphers, examine clues and solve puzzles. It's like an escape room delivered right to your door. Wait, so all this comes to my front door? How? In a box, John. In a box filled with piles of documents, evidence, audio recordings and case files. And part of the proceeds for every box goes to the Cold Case Foundation, an organization that is dedicated to helping with real-life cold cases. Right now, you can go to hunterkiller.com and use code JMG for 20% off your first box. Again, make sure to use code JMG for a 20% discount. Do you have what it takes to hunt a killer? Oh, I do indeed. I absolutely do. Hey, you turkey. I'm here for the game, turkey. What? Go to hunterkiller.com forward slash event horizon and use code JMG for 20% off your first box. Now, on a, on a related subject, because this, this would eventually become relevant if one of these things were of alien origin, that is communications with it, Medi messaging extraterrestrial intelligence what are your views on that should we do it or should we really try to play it safe especially if the aliens are close well when you walk in the wilderness you better be quiet because you never know whether there are predators out there and so i would adopt the same strategy here and uh, first of all try to figure out the most i can about anyone else in space and as a, the best approach would be for us to learn as much as possible about these objects or other objects or signals that we get and try to interpret them and as you say it's a challenge to figure out what the meaning behind them is it's it was a challenge with the trojan horse and it's even more of a challenge when you have a conversation if you get a signal because then it's similar to Alan Turing's uh, challenge of decoding the Enigma code during uh, the, the Second World War. That was a major challenge and um, he eventually figured it out. And the same applies to any language that you don't fully understand. And uh, moreover, we are used to communicating using, for example, sound waves as we speak to each other. It's possible that the means of communication are quite different for uh, creatures that were born on a planet that had no connection to Earth, that developed technologies that are far removed from what we develop. And that's why it's a fishing expedition. You know, we can't forecast what kind of a fish we will get. It could be a fish that we've never seen before. Which brings up Earth because of the just enormous diversity in, in uh, bioforms on this planet from fish all the way to birds to humans, all communicating differently. So just Earth alone creates an issue there as far as communications. Right. gets much worse with an alien that has no connection to you at all. Yeah, just to give you an example, you know, most stars 
are smaller than the Sun. The Sun is not a typical star, so most of them are dwarf stars. And, for example, the nearest star to us is Proxima Centauri. It's 12% uh, of the mass of the Sun, has roughly half the surface temperature of the Sun. So it emits mostly infrared light. And if there are any creatures on the habitable planet near it, uh, Proxima b, they must have infrared eyes, very different from the eyes that we have. So I asked students in my class, the freshman seminar, if they know of any creatures on Earth that have infrared eyes. And one of them found, uh, Googled it and found uh, a shrimp that has infrared eyes and they look uh, like ping pong balls connected with cords to the head of the shrimp. It did look like an alien to me, but it's still you know, a creature we find here on Earth. And who knows how these things look like uh, elsewhere. And this is just a matter of vision that we are talking about. But uh, think about intelligent creatures that develop a language of their own, how different they could be from us. Or, I mean, even, even in science, I mean, there's no guarantee that they would choose base 10 mathematics or something like that. So they may have a different interpretation, right? Definitely. And, you know, we are born into this world like actors put on a stage. And the one thing we notice after studying the universe is the stage is huge. We are not at the center of it, like the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle argued. And people believed him for a thousand years because it flattered their ego to believe that we are at the center of the world. So we know that the stage is like 10 to the power 26 times bigger than the size of our body. It's huge. And the other thing we know is that the play was going on for 13.8 billion years, much, well, much before we came to exist. And the, clearly the play is not about us. But what we can do is find other actors and ask them whether they have a better sense of what the play is about. Perhaps they will have insights that we currently don't have. Now, motivations of an alien civilization to actually come here. The bottom line really is that our solar system has is made of the same stuff that the entire galaxy is made out of. So there's they don't need gold. They, they're going to have that closer. They don't need water. Water is just ridiculously common. So there seems to me to only be one reason to come here, and that would be life on Earth, this interesting exoplanet. If we found something that looked like Earth we would do everything we could to study it. So might that be the basic motivation for an alien civilization to come here? And it's worth noting, too, that this planet has shown a biosignature, essentially, for a very, very long time, far longer than a technosignature. Right. So do you think that would be the reason that they would come here? Well, that's one possibility, but also, you know, if it's possible they planted the, uh, some forms of life here on Earth and they want to see what comes out of those seeds. We don't know what their intent or motivation is, but my guess is we are not dealing with living creatures that come and visit us or, or uh, collecting necessarily the data. It could be, you know, we are developing now artificial intelligence and within a century it may overtake our ability as uh, you know, biological creatures. And, and just think about robots, tiny robots that can uh, self-replicate and produce other robots of the same type. And they can survive for billions of years, unlike biological creatures. And 
you know, I'm not, it's hard to tell what the, the agenda, what, what the long-term goal of these robots is, but you can, we can, I can imagine uh, equipment that has its own life <laughs> that is very long and has its own uh, agenda of visiting stars and figuring out things about stars and manipulating what happens on pla habitable planets in ways that we cannot now comprehend. But I think instead of speculating, let's just be spectators. Let's observe and try to see what what uh, these things are and if they exist, and rather than uh, guessing ahead of time, because maybe as we collect more data, more evidence, it will become clear. Actually looking for them. Now you've mentioned cameras and, and looking at them looking from that way. But people are going to say in the comments, what about radar? Because sometimes these things are reported to appear, uh, you know, on radar. So it would seem to me that would be a really straightforward way to try to determine if this phenomenon is atmospheric or if it was actually a solid object. Yeah, definitely. And I think the government does have radar data on some of the objects and uh, that's what makes them appear real because they were detected in multiple instruments uh, radars uh, infrared cameras and visible light cameras and and then pilots uh, that saw them many different pilots at the same time so that gives confidence they are real objects and presumably there there might be some satellite data on the bigger objects but my point is that a physicist looking at these objects would approach them differently than military personnel. Because if, if I were to examine these objects and try to collect more data on them or evidence, what I would look for, for example, is if an object moves faster than the speed of sound in air, there should be a sonic boom, a shockwave generated just uh, the same way that uh, a supersonic plane produces a sonic boom. And uh, there might be signatures of that, uh, either in the images or the infrared uh, signature of the object, because it will heat up. I would like to see the byproducts of the motion, not just to see the motion being supersonic, but to, to uh, see the evidence that indeed this supersonic motion results in the standard phenomena that we are familiar with, because any physical object of some cross-section moving faster than sound in air will produce a shockwave. We, we want to see that. And then when it goes through water, there should be a splash that will tell us something about the size of the object, the, the properties of the... So in principle, with scientific data that is sufficiently rich, you can learn much more than just saying, oh, there is something that looks like a tic-tac or something that looks like this and that, which is pretty much what the pilots were talking about. So instead of qualitative discussions, I would like to have quantitative discussions that from the point of view of scientists. And for that, you need first scientists to be engaged, involved in the process. So I'll, I'm volunteering to, to be part of the discussion. And as long as uh, the people that have the data would appoint an appropriate uh, committee or um, or forum that, that can analyze existing data or to collect new data that they will be open to the public. One thing that seems to have changed with this whole thing is that it used to be you never 
knew where the UFO was going to show up. It was just spotted by, by people, and then we would hear anecdotes about it. Now they seem to cluster around Navy ships, and they seem to do it a lot. That would seem to me to provide a natural point to start of knowing where to look, right? Well, so there could be two possible natural reasons for this uh, clustering that you point out. One is if it were another nation trying to spy on military facilities, you would naturally find those objects near the military facilities. Okay. Another possible explanation is these are the regions that uh, where the sensors that monitor the sky are concentrated. You just don't have such sensors in Disneyland, right? Or in New York City. And that's why we don't see as, as many weird objects there. I mean, people may use their cell phones to take photographs, but uh, they do not monitor the sky in the same way that the military sensors do. And so you naturally find the evidence around military constellations because that's where the sky is being monitored very frequently. And these are the two simple explanations. Otherwise, you might say, oh, maybe that implies a certain intent. If indeed you monitor other regions, geographical locations, and you don't find such unusual phenomena and you find them only around nuclear reactors, around military facilities, then it means something about the intent of those objects. And that's where it gets scary. Why would an alien civilization be taking account of our nuclear capabilities? <laughs> Not sure I want to think about that one too much. Now, the so in, in principle, the, the way to start would just simply pick a suitable area, set up sensors, and it doesn't have to be anywhere special, just wherever convenient, and just monitor the skies for X amount of time and gain a sample, essentially. Right. And if you don't see that, then you need to stick it on a Navy ship, basically, right? Yeah. And, and you know, someone may ask, oh, we are monitoring the sky with uh, astronomical facilities. We have telescopes looking at the sky. But uh, I should clarify that even survey telescopes that are monitoring the sky and looking for transients, things that change over time. And there are some facilities. One of them is pan stars that um, monitor the sky and discovered Oumuamua, the first interstellar object. It's located in Hawaii, this telescope, and there will be a successor to it, which uh, will be much more sensitive, called the Vera Rubin Observatory, uh, that will start its operation in a couple of years in Chile. So one thing to understand is that these astronomical facilities, these telescopes, focusing on very distant sources of light. And uh, if there is something moving in our atmosphere very quickly above our head, they are not designed uh, to look for those. I mean, these might be interpreted as satellites moving through the image or some, some other things, or uh, maybe an airplane. Or I mean, so if you see something like that, the astronomers will, would ignore it. But if you do a survey which is focused nearby objects, as should be in the case of uh, unidentified flying objects or uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, then you are targeting a completely different data set. And that's my proposal. 
And with that, we have to take a break. I'm joined today by Dr. Avi Loeb, author of Extraterrestrial and many, many, many recent essays on Scientific American. We'll be back in a minute to talk more about UFOs. And we're back with Avi Loeb. Now, Dr. The scientist that discovers evidence of an alien civilization, which could come from the UAP phenomenon, we don't know, is probably going to win a Nobel Prize. Given that, why do you think that there has been such a taboo against the subject that's been ingrained for many years now in science? Well, it's a high-risk, high-reward proposition, but frankly, the Nobel Prize is not worth much in the big scheme of things. If you think about it, it's awarded by humans to humans for figuring out something that we never realized before. And even though for us it would be a big revelation, in terms of the ocean of knowledge that there is out there, it may be a very trivial fact, uh, you know, that other civilizations know about much more. So, I mean, we have our science developed over the past century, and uh, we should realize that it's just an island of knowledge in an ocean of ignorance, and there is so much we don't know. We don't even know what most of the matter in the universe is. We don't know what was there before the Big Bang. We don't have a quantum theory of gravity that works. And there are lots of things that we don't even know how to ask. And um, so um, I would pretty much say that we should be modest. And uh, getting the Nobel Prize is really not very significant in the big scheme of things. Uh, It's true that such a revelation would be more significant than the discovery that the Earth moves around the sun because it has huge implications. You know, it would uh, change the way we view our place in the universe. You know, if, if we are not the smartest kid on the block, there is something we can learn from others. And um, it would change our religious beliefs. It would change the way the international relations we have because we are all part of the human species and they are out there and they are different. And uh, it would change a lot of things and uh, there is no bigger scientific question now uh, at the same time because it's such a high reward discovery there is a huge amount of skepticism among uh, scientists because some of them are reluctant to uh, move away from their comfort zone from things they already know and anything that they see is interpreted in terms of what we already know So that's uh, conservatism. At the same time, there is huge interest from the public. And, you know, some of the statements made about UFOs are not substantiated by any scientific facts. And so the scientists say, we don't want any part of it because there is some nonsense being said out there. But just think about the human body. There were people saying that it has a soul about um, a thousand years ago. And just imagine if scientists would say, we don't want to do any anatomy because the human body may have a soul and it's a controversial subject, where would modern medicine be? I think uh, scientists have an obligation to address controversial subjects and shed some light on them, clear up the fog. If there are there is evidence and serious people find or document evidence for unidentified objects and they are not human-made because otherwise there would be national security threat, then scientists should get into the picture and 
clarify their nature and this is as important and much more important than finding out the nature of dark matter. And it has to be said here too that an inquiry into this of the type that you're proposing has other benefits. What if these are some sort of atmospheric phenomenon, a natural phenomenon that we were unaware of until now? And such a an effort would collect data on atmospheric phenomena that could be mistaken for UFOs. So you would see the mirages of Venus and all that sort of thing. So you could actually start to characterize how common those kinds of phenomena are as well, right? Yeah, so we will learn something new no matter what, because it's something we didn't expect. And so it's a win-win proposition. If you see something anomalous, something strange, actually it's it's a great thing you shouldn't feel that it shakes you out of your comfort zone it's a, a an opportunity to learn something new which which is all that motivates science to make new discoveries and you know nobody expected quantum mechanics uh, a century ago it was brought upon us by experiments that we did not anticipate and we learn new things science is a learning experience and we should have this uh, childhood curiosity in us as scientists, rather than assume that we know already the answers in advance, be open-minded. You know, when a kid looks at an object, the kid turns it around and you think that the kid is playing with it. But in fact, the kid is trying to learn about it. An adult looking at the object would look at it from one direction and say, oh, I pretty much know what's on the other side. I don't want to spend the effort. And uh, therefore, nothing unusual will be found. If you are not willing to find wonderful things, you will never discover them. Now, in regards to the numbers, if they're, hypothetically, let's say you find something and it is a, we're able to determine that it's of alien origin, having an alien civilization present in your own atmosphere that close would tend to suggest that alien civilizations are extremely common, correct? Not necessarily, because uh, over a billion years, you can pretty much fill up uh, the Milky Way galaxy with probes. If they are intentional, you don't just send them randomly in different directions. You target the habitable zones around stars, and then you don't need as many probes as if you were to send them randomly. If, if they hone on, on this particular region around stars where life may exist, then and they can re self-replicate, you could pretty much fill up um, the galaxy, uh, around, send a probe to almost every star and uh, learn about the whereabouts of, of life there and even monitor uh, what is happening in real time. And for that, you just need one very advanced civilization that uh, was able to spread out. Just think about... Uh, uh, the Europeans that sent uh, ships initially for commercial reasons to, let's say, Africa to find to, to get commodities, but then ended up uh, finding the new world in the Americas. And we, we now have uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk uh, for commercial reasons, advertising space exploration, but, but uh, they may send up uh, ships uh, into space uh, that will eventually end up discovering new worlds. Uh, in, in much the same way. So you start the journey with uh, some motivation, but if, if you get equipment that uh, is uh, self-sufficient and can uh, reproduce itself, then you can pretty much fill up the galaxy in a billion years. 
Now, we'll come back to that, but we have something big on the horizon regarding this subject, the report that is mandated to come out, I believe, on June 25th. What do you expect from the report, and do you expect a lot of it's not going to be very interesting and that (laughs) most of the good stuff will be classified? Yeah, I think um, the data that will be released will be just the tip of the iceberg. And the reason is simple. The data was collected by sensors that are classified. We don't want our adversaries, other nations, to know the array of sensors we have and the kind of data that we get routinely by monitoring our sky. And uh, at the same time, some people have access to that data. And uh, when I hear high-level officials like um, former President Obama or former CIA directors, uh, John Brennan and John Woolsey, speaking about um, uh, these as real objects, when they had access to the classified data, that lends uh, confidence that we have this uh, iceberg of which we just see the tip that supports the notion that these are real objects. Because these uh, politicians uh, or administrators are are serious people. You know, they would not express themselves in this way. So that's what lends uh, credibility to the notion that we we have much more data than is revealed to the public and and the the objects might be real and i think that is the most important statement that these are real objects and at the same time not probably not human made uh, because they maneuver in ways that far supersede our technology now it's possible that another nation developed things that are far ahead of us but that would be a major intelligence problem because we haven't figured out that they are doing it. Uh, and so I would guess that we pretty much know what other nations are doing. And therefore, these cannot be human-made. And uh, if that's the case, uh, as we discussed before, we will learn something new, uh, whether they are made by nature or whether they are extraterrestrial. And to me, that's very exciting, and I'm very interested in finding out more about these objects. Well, I think I think most of the public would echo that. I, I think there's there's been huge interest in the UFO phenomenon among uh, just the general population, even though very little among science. But now seems to be the time to sort of merge the two and get to the bottom of it finally, you know, and be able to say, okay, we know what the unidentified flying objects are. And as you said, it very well, almost likely that it will be a mixed bag, but maybe one of those options is an alien civilization. Yeah, it's enough to have one object. We don't need more than one that we identify as extraterrestrial. And I discussed one object that is a candidate, which is Oumuamua in my book, uh, Extraterrestrial. But of course, among the UAP, there could be one or more, and uh, they, of course, are closer to us, and uh, we should therefore monitor them uh, more closely. And I I think it's about time now that this subject would move out of the classified data set of the government into the open data set of scientists. So let's move it from government to science. And I think then... Um, everything will be transparent. The public will be able to know what we know 
there wouldn't be any issues with sensors that are classified and therefore data not being available because we will use cameras that you can buy in stores, you know, and, and the scientists will just collect data and release it and analyze it in a transparent way, just the way scientific experiments are done. I think that's the healthy approach to this subject. One also wonders what you could do with satellites. I would imagine in that classified data set, there's probably satellite footage of these things. So given that, could a public satellite be, you know, just a CubeSat or something, be put in orbit and put to use trying to spot these things from low Earth orbit? Potentially, yes, but it needs to be equipped with a big enough lens, a big enough telescope, so that it can resolve objects that are rather small from a great distance. And uh, obviously there are spy satellites of that type uh, that are, you know, getting footage of um, buildings and even perhaps humans or vehicles that are the size of these objects that are talked about. So that is definitely possible technologically, but you need to invest if you want to do it in a non-military context, you need the investment of funds in satellites that will monitor the ground. Usually, astronomers are looking up, not down. And so this would be a scientific experiment that is quite different from what astronomers are used to. You will take a telescope and point it down rather than up. But, you know, given what you're looking for, you, have a, you can cover a lot of ground with, with a satellite. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what do you think the likelihood is of this actually having an alien origin? That just just one UFO being of alien origin. Does that seem likely to you that that that, you know, that, that it could be or does it do you think it's highly unlikely, but we have to check it out anyway? Well, it's definitely possible. We know that uh, about half of the sun like stars have a planet roughly the size of the Earth at roughly the same separation. We know it from the Kepler satellite data. And uh, that means that not only that we, we are not at the center of the universe, but also what we find in our backyard is very common, the Earth-Sun system. There are tens of billions like them in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And uh, most of the stars formed billions of years before the Sun. So if they hosted a technological civilization that predated us by billions of years, they, these technological civilizations had plenty of time to send probes that will visit a planetary system like the solar system and could replicate themselves and, and visit us. And, you know, it's not completely outrageous to think that even Oumuamua, the unusual interstellar object that we discovered in 2017, was on a reconnaissance mission that was trying to collect data from probes that already existed in our vicinity. And perhaps uh, there was a predecessor to that uh, Oumuamua object that uh, uh, distributed those uh, probes ahead of time. And uh, we just didn't detect it because it visited us before the Pan-STARRS survey uh, looked at the sky and you know decades ago and if these probes are around and they collect data and uh, every now and then with there might be a receiver that is passing by and perhaps that's why Oumuamua had a very flat 
shape and thin shape. It was a receiver rather than a light sail or, or something else. So, you know, everything is possible, but the way to make progress is to collect more data. This brings up another thing you've done work on. So say we find the one UFO that's of alien origin. Then we get to ask ourselves, where are they from? And one possibility is that they are from a nearby exoplanet, such as Proxima B, which means we should turn our telescopes and look for evidence of technology, right? Well, it's quite unlikely that they come from the nearest star because if you just uh, look at Earth, you know, we developed uh, radio communication and um, our technologies over the past century, and that's a small fraction of the age of the Earth. And if you imagine a similar window of opportunity around Proxima Centauri, then that means that it's very unlikely that we are witnessing it right now because it's only one part in a hundred million of the age of the star. And so what's the chance that that short window of opportunity is available to us just as this star is passing close to us? Most likely, if we ever catch a star to have uh, technological abilities similar to ours, it will be far away. And so you need the 100 million stars before you would get one of them to show it if the chance is one in 100 million. So that would argue that that is called the Copernican principle, basically saying that we don't live at a privileged time. Copernicus argued that we don't reside or uh, we are not located at a privileged place. Um, We are not at the center of the universe. And you can generalize it to a privileged time. And and that would imply that Proxima Centauri may not is not likely to have a technological civilization like ours right now, but but who knows? So uh, the thing about Oumuamua, for example, is that it originated in a frame of reference that is called the local standard of rest, which is the average of the motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. And so none of the nearby stars is at rest in that frame, and Oumuamua was at rest. Only one in 500 stars is so much at rest as Oumuamua was. And that means that it didn't originate from any of those stars. And um, that's just one object. Who knows? I would very much approach this subject like a fisherman going for a fishing expedition and without uh, any assumptions of what uh, the hook will find. The implications of finding a distant alien civilization through SETI and finding one in your own star system seems to me to be a little bit different because if you've got distance, you also have time. So you see some technosignature 1,500 light years away. It's it's it, from the past and it's just too far away to reasonably expect this, you know, communication even. But if you got one in your star system, you open up direct contact with that alien civilization. So if we wanted to establish, you know, say say it landed and it printed out, it 3D printed out an alien that says, you know, take me to your leader. First contact, what do you think the prudent way to handle that would be? Well, first to listen rather than speak and see, try to interpret the meaning behind the communication signal we get. That would be extremely important. 
I should say that the, the search strategy we had in the past is misguided. We looked for radio signals coming from the directions of other stars. And this is just like trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be alive. But if you imagine those distant cultures being similar to the cultures we had on Earth, most of the civilizations or cultures that existed on Earth are dead by now. But we find evidence for them in archaeological digs through the relics they left behind. So a much better approach is to do space archaeology, search for relics left behind, equipment that was sent into space, especially self-replicating probes. You know, that would likely be the dominant kind of objects we will find. And, and just to remind you, you know, the electronic equipment is much more durable than uh, biological uh, creatures because uh, it can survive the hazardous environment of space much better and can last for billions of years in principle. So my guess is that we will first encounter equipment. Perhaps it, the equipment has artificial intelligence as part of it, but it will not be biological. So the contact will not be with living creatures. Uh, if I had to guess, it would be more with sophisticated, very advanced technological equipment. Which opens up a really sad possibility of having functioning alien equipment collecting data on Earth and beaming it back to an extinct alien civilization. <laughs> yeah, well, that uh, is frustrating for us because we want us uh, ourselves to be known, uh, famous also on the galactic scale, not just uh, in Hollywood. But on the other hand, uh, you know, it may be better if those uh, aliens that send the equipment had... Um, negative thoughts about what they want to do with the information, it's better that they're not around, you know, for us. Uh, so we, we, we first have to figure out the intent of the, of the senders before we decide whether it's to our benefit or not uh, to have them alive. And which could be very beneficial to us. There, you know, I, I usually, and I'll get to this in a bit, I usually tend to be a little bit uh, negative on first contact scenarios. But in this case, I mean, if you had an alien probe that's been sitting out there collecting data on Earth for millions of years, it has a gift for you. It could come back and say, hello, first contact. Here is a record of the entire natural history of your planet. Uh, it could also tell us what the dark matter is, what was there before the Big Bang, how to unify quantum mechanics and gravity. For me, that would save us a lot of time. And you might say each of these bits of information could have won a Nobel Prize, but who cares? It might feel like cheating in an exam where you look over the shoulders of a student next to you to figure out the answer. But if it saves you a million years, you know, I'm very much for it. And moreover, there is no teacher that is grading us, right? So as students, it's beneficial for us to know the answer and save the million years in the process. That would be absolutely amazing if SETI picked up a radio signal and by some miracle was able to <laughs> able to translate it. And it turns out to be a quantum theory of gravity, alien civilization telling everybody the answer to the biggest problem in physics. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it may not be a radio signal. It could be a piece of equipment that we find. And just imagine another object like Oumuamua being discovered by... Panstars or by the Vera Rubin Observatory in the more distant future, and uh, us being alerted 
to it a year in advance and as a result we send a spacecraft equipped with a camera and we take a close-up photograph and and see that it is a technological relic rather than a rock and then we decide to have a mission similar to osiris rex that landed on the asteroid bennu and collected a sample that will be returned to Earth in 2023. So just imagine landing on a piece of equipment. And first of all, we might read off the label made on planet X. And second, we might import the technology back to Earth. That could be worth a lot of money. Oh, yeah. If you had a piece of alien technology in your hands, then you are automatically ahead of the other nation states. Right. It, it, it would feel like uh, holding a, a cell phone long before it's released to the public and playing with its features. Now, as a scientist, say we were able to recover parts of a UAP and they were anomalous. And there have been reports that this might be the case, uh, that Lockheed Martin, according to Harry Reid, or uh, Bigelow Aerospace, according to... A tip, I, guess, I suppose, have these materials. Where do you start in analyzing them and trying to differentiate them from Earth materials? No, I think um, a scientist should should look at whatever hardware is being identified. And I should say that we have a pretty good sense of which elements are possible within the standard uh, model of physics because uh, elements that are not found in nature are thought to be unstable and it would be a huge revelation if a deviation from the standard model of physics if there were other elements that are stable but we've never encountered Uh, and uh, i should say any deviation from the laws of physics even a slight one would be a nobel prize so you know it, it shouldn't be taken lightly to argue that maybe these deviate from what we know about physics because even a slight deviation and and by the way physicists are searching for slight deviations in accelerators even the muon magnetic moment deviating slightly from what might have been expected and that's still being debated could imply new physics and just to remind you for decades we haven't found new physics in accelerators Uh, we pretty much confirmed what we already knew And so, uh, you know, physics is a very mature subject and there is a huge body of data that seems to conform with what we define as the standard model of physics. And if we were to find an object behaving differently, then it would be big news, even as big as finding aliens in the sense that here is something fundamental we missed about nature about the laws of physics and that's more important than aliens because uh, the laws of physics affect the entire universe you know that it's not just a local phenomena it's uh, something we missed that is presumably has other implications elsewhere in the universe and and uh, you know that would be dramatic now question regarding that dark matter we still don't know what it is so Is it still open that we have found a deviation in gravity? Oh, yeah. So there are anomalies. There are things that don't match up what we already know. But what people say, what scientists say, again, in order to stay in their comfort zone, they say, okay, there is another type of particle. We can extend the standard model of physics so that there would be other types of particles. And it really depends what are the properties of 
of that particle. But people came up with scenarios where you don't modify the standard model too much, you just extend it in a way that would allow other types of particles to exist, but they don't have any significant implication uh, for our lives on Earth because these particles are very weakly interacting with ordinary matter and uh, they pretty much have only a, a big influence on, on objects like galaxies or clusters of galaxies, things that do not really matter in our daily life. But of course, we have to keep in mind that we wouldn't exist if the dark matter didn't exist because the, the seeds for everything we see around us came from early in the universe and they were carried by the dark matter. All the small uh, inhomogeneities in the universe uh, survived in the dark matter sector but did not survive in the ordinary matter sector because it was coupled to the cosmic microwave background and, and that smoothed out all the inhomogeneity. So, so in a sense, the dark matter is important for our cosmic roots, but it's not important for our daily lives uh, today. Now, my last question for you, Doctor, this, this time. So we seem to have the public interest and the interest of Congress and a lot of politicians, Marco Rubio, etc., to get to the bottom of this. What is the first steps that need to be taken to create a proper scientific inquiry into the UFO UAP phenomenon? I think there should be a scientific forum established that is composed of scientists, not uh, military personnel, not uh, politicians, not administrators, but scientists that approach this subject from a scientific perspective, as if they were tasked to design an experiment, uh, basically using the instruments that we have at our disposal now to shed more light on this phenomenon and figure it out. And of course, there would be many scientists that would not participate in this because they think they know the answer. But I'm one of those scientists that uh, are very curious and I, I'll be glad to lead such a forum and collect more evidence. And when you collect evidence with instrumentation that is available commercially and just analyze that kind of a data without requesting access to classified data, then the process will be completely transparent to the public. And I think it's an opportunity to gain the confidence of the public in evidence-based science. I mean, we saw one incarnation of that um, through the vaccines that were developed. The messenger RNA vaccine was a synthetic chemical produced in a laboratory. It was not a weakened virus. And that shows that understanding the the virus scientific understand understanding of the virus led to a chemical that was produced artificially that basically produced the desired immune response which is a celebration of modern science you know when we understand something we can solve the problem and so right now if when the pentagon report comes out there will be a problem what are these objects and why don't we let science shed more light and answer this question, this, solve this problem? And I think that's the obvious next step. And what you need is a relatively modest funding for experiments that will clarify the nature 
of unidentified aerial phenomena, and I'm willing to be engaged in that uh, wholeheartedly. All right, Dr. Loeb, thanks again for joining us. And everybody should check out Dr. Loeb's new book, Extraterrestrial, which goes into the origins of a very, very strange object that passed through the solar system, Oumuamua. Well, that was excellent, John. Thanks for listening. I am futurist and science fiction author. Wrong channel. No, it's not. Thanks for listening. I am futurist and science fiction author John Michael Godier, currently hosting Event Horizon and wondering where Anna actually came from. One day I had a tablet computer, the next I had a boss. Very disturbing. And be sure. And that's enough of that. YouTuber forever. Like, subscribe, and hit the bell. Sell out. What? <laughs>